there is always a very comforting and uh, pleasant uh, matter of coming to the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or whatever elevation might, one might receive from Daniel or from any of the others in the record of Holy Scripture, there is something serene and beautiful, far excelling, when you come into the company of the Son of God as we are in these studies in Mark. We yesterday noted the opening of Mark's Gospel in which, in his own words, was intended to illustrate that he is the Son of God, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first incident led us to that exalted statement from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A statement that was based in turn upon the prophet Isaiah's when he said in the 42nd chapter in verse 1, Behold my servant, in whom I am delighted. That word delighted, of course, reminds us, doesn't it, of the Garden of Eden, because Eden means delight. And although man had been cast forth from the Garden of Delight, there would have been noted in Isaiah 42 verse 1, that in this servant, God was again going to take delight in one among men. And it's interesting to take that thought forward into the temptation story, which in Mark is condensed in verses 12 and 13. There's no record of the three temptations of which we have in that beautiful hymn sung and reminded ourselves of this morning. But Mark only condenses that into two verses. Immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness. Every detail is important, my dear brethren and sisters. He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of the adversary, as Satan means, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, although that's only a very short description, there are in fact details there that are not in the other records, aren't there? Here it mentions that angels ministered unto him. It's in Luke's Gospel that it mentions that an angel came to him. Here it mentions wild beasts, but that is not mentioned in the record of the other gospel writers. Here also, in a very strong way, it indicates the determination of the Spirit that this event should come his way. Immediately, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. That's a very strong statement, isn't it? And it means too, my dear brothers and sisters, that there was a need for him to be driven in the wilderness. He was not some sort of automat as one might imagine. What one would have to do to a statement like that if one believed that he was literally God? I dare to think. For how could it be, my dear brothers and sisters, if he was literally God, that the Spirit could drive him into the wilderness? He would be the Spirit. And the Spirit would be the Spirit of God. It would be his own Spirit. But here there's a very clear distinction. 
Immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Why? Because the wilderness and the temptation that ensued was not something that the Lord found easy. He was not an automat to go, to do good. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse, I think, 15, it says that in his temptation he suffered. He suffered having been tempted. Being tempted, he suffered. Notice that. The temptation was real. He was a man. He was not God, he was a man. And therefore the temptation was real. And he did not want that temptation for 40, years, 40 days in the wilderness. Any more than you and I would ask for that circumstance. But it was necessary in the provisions of God, in the purpose of God, that that should be enacted upon him. And so the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And Mark's expression there is stronger than any other of the Gospel writers in that regard. There are, in fact, some extremely beautiful considerations that come from this very short narrative of the temptation. Let us uh, remind ourselves of that language. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. When else did the Spirit of God drive man from the garden of delight because you see in a sense verse 11 was a place of delight wasn't it when he was at the baptism there was a state of delight this is my my only son my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and Isaiah said in whom my soul delighteth but he was driven from that circumstance into the wilderness which reminds us doesn't it of when Adam and Eve had sinned and after they had been uh, clothed with garments provided of God in place of the fig leaves, they too were driven out of the garden of delight. And it says that they were tempted, and he was tempted, or it says of Adam and Eve, that whilst in that garden of delight they had been tempted of the serpent. As here now he is tempted of the adversary. There shouldn't be a capital S on Satan. That's just a work of the translators. There's no capital letters on any of the words in the Greek. And so the word is Satan and it means the adversary. He is tempted of the adversary. And you know, Paul makes a comparison between Adam and Christ, doesn't he? He says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For as by one man sin entered the world, so also by one man resurrection came. Which in verse 45 he describes as the first Adam and the last Adam. So there's a comparison made by the Apostle between the first Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ who has set a different course of events. But to do that, my dear brothers and sisters, the, the last Adam had to enter in to the problems of the first Adam. Whereas the first Adam was inside a garden and in that delight the temptation came. There was the words of temptation spoken. And in that circumstance he failed and was driven from the wilderness. The second Adam has had to go into the wilderness from the delight which he enjoyed with his father as is clear from verse 11. But in the intention of God and with the willing cooperation of the Son, 
He has gone into the wilderness that he might bring mankind back into the garden of God's delight. And so we have both comparisons and contrasts. Whereas Adam was in a garden of delight, here the Lord, to bring man back, has now to go into the wilderness with its thorns and thistles. And whereas in Genesis chapter 2, there were beasts of the field to which he gave names, to all the beasts of the field, Adam gave names. Which means to say that when he was speaking to the lion about what name he should give him, the lion wasn't trying to bite off his arm, was he? There was a state of peace between all of the animals. A state of peace which the prophet Isaiah in his 65th chapter indicates will be yet again when the lion shall eat straw like a fox or the lamb, the wolf, shall lie down together. That clearly is the situation that we had in Genesis 2. Hence the contrast in Genesis 9, where it speaks there of the shedding of blood. But in the beginning, I'm quite sure that uh, ravaging nature of the animals was not there. So, in verse 13, when the Lord goes out into the wilderness, it particularly mentions that there were wild beasts out there around him. You know, we don't perhaps always realise just what a wide spectrum of fauna were in Israel at that time. Modern Israel is seeking to bring back the animals of the past. And it's an interesting thing now that the guides can show you all kinds of animals. Different type of deer, um, leopards, and there were of course lions, in those days, David speaks of a bear as well, doesn't he, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. So there was a much wider spread of animals in the days of the Lord and of uh, David and so forth, the days of the Bible, in the land of Palestine. So that when he went down into the wilderness, there were, with the wilderness, there were wild beasts uh, with him in that area. It was not a very nice place to go. And I think we ought to, in our mind, clearly understand that. He was not going into any place which was desirable. The very environment was, uh, was um, dangerous. It was not a place that one would wish to go at all. It's not only a lack of food, but it was danger itself. But did the wild beasts harm him? No, they didn't. They were as tame as those which Daniel found in the dungeon into which he was cast by Darius. So God had sent his angels that they might hold the mouth of the lion. And so we have these contrasts and comparisons. Adam and Eve were kept out by means of the angels that were placed there in the garden called cherubim that turned every way to keep the way of the tree of the life. However, although this last Adam is outside the garden, he's in among wild beasts, he's in the wilderness he's enduring all the pricks and thorns of human life yet because his ways please God, angels come and minister unto him as though they would in fact beckon him back into the garden of delight. You might notice the terminology which is put there, the angels ministered unto him, does that set off a little bell in your mind? 
What's the purpose of angels, says the Apostle Paul? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth on behalf of those who shall be heirs of salvation? And where does that phrase come from? Psalm 104, quoted by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, but first found in Psalm 104. What's Psalm 104 about? Psalm 104 is a creation psalm. It's a delightful commentary upon all the lovely things that God has created. It starts with a picture of heaven itself. Yahweh, my God, thou very great, clothed with honour and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a garment, laying the beams of your chambers in the waters, making the clouds his chariot. Verse 4, who maketh his angels spirits. His ministers a flaming fire who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. And so in the context of that beautiful psalm, it's a delightful psalm. If you ever find this position, my dear brothers and sisters, where you're high and lifted up above the sea, read Psalm 104. Because that's where David was, who I think, who I believe penned it, when it was penned. He was above the sea. You see, you notice that because of verse 25. So is this great and wide sea wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan, the whale, whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. So if you ever get an opportunity, in quietness, just go up on that mountain with the green grass and all the the slopes of the mountains with their cattle and their sheep and all the birds around you, you read that psalm and see what an impression it makes upon you. It's a commentary upon creation. In the midst of that, it speaks of the angels of God that are sent forth from him as ministering spirits. What a remarkable thought that is. That God should send to us those wonderful and powerful beings that excel in strength, that they should be ministers to us to bring us out of that wilderness with him and to bring us eventually into the garden of life and delight why do you think he mentions the wild beasts I believe it's because of a quotation of Psalm 91 but the relevance of Psalm 91 will only be appreciated if on our way there we call in first at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. In reply to the temptation that he should cast himself down from a pinnacle of the temple, we read in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 4, If thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down, for it is written. Sorry, this is the words of the temptation itself. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give, God shall give, His angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And so the nature of that temptation was to suggest to the Lord, that he would be able to use God's providence to his own women fancy. Why, yes, try a little bit of uh, aerial uh, acrobatics, so to speak, that display your supernatural abilities. And why is there any trouble? 
For surely, in fact, God will send his angels and before your feet should light upon the ground and they shall deliver you up and sustain you from injury. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But where does that quotation come from? Concerning the angels. Psalm 91. Let us go to Psalm 91. Jesus looked at those wild beasts behind whom seen by the eye of faith were the angels I am absolutely certain that this psalm came to his mind Psalm 91 and there we are in verse 9 because thou hast made Yahweh which is my refuge even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee. <coughs> Neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The wilderness was full of stones. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. Here's the wild beasts. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. And the reply of God is because he hath set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. You know the Lord knew all that psalm. He knew not only the passage which promised that God's deliverance would be there through the angels lest he dash his foot against a stone. But he also knew that by staying close to God in time of uh, temptation, that God would eventually tread under his feet the lion and the adder. Why the lion and the adder? I believe they were there out in the wilderness. I believe that that's what the situation means when it says there were wild beasts. There's not some little fox running around. It was a wild beast because the sense of it was danger. Death was lurking. That's the sense of it, isn't it? He was not out there because he might uh, happen to deal with some little fox. He was out there because he was dealing with the great issue of life and death. And surrounding him was the powers of death. The adder that, that crept through the rocks and dust of the wilderness. The lion that sprung down from the rocks of the wilderness, which David had seen in earlier time in 1 Samuel 17. He speaks about that. Or the bear with his power to bring to death. That's the very point of Psalm 91. Psalm 91's not talking ultimately about animals, is it? But about that which has the power of death. That is, sin unto death. Thou shalt tread the lion and the adder. The serpent that has the, the association with the sin in the beginning. The sting of whom is death. And the lion, to be in the lion's mouth is to be in the place of death. Psalm 22 and verse 21 says, Thou, I am in the lion's mouth. See? Psalm 22 and 21. So verse 31, 13 is speaking about the position of death, the power of death. See? And that is, of course, the power of sin. The sting of death. The sting of death, says the Apostle Paul 
In 1 Corinthians 15, is it verse 51 or 52? The sting of death is sin. That's what Psalm 91 and its ultimate is speaking about. And those wild beasts, those snakes, for 40 days out there in the wilderness were but tokens of the true messenger of death, which is sin itself, which was lurking, lurking in every way it could to try and bring this man down into a temptation. And he was promised there that because he had put his soul upon God, uh, therefore he would truly be re- he would truly be redeemed. Not, of course, that this is the only time that angels appear in the life of the Lord. Indeed, not. Later on, he could have had twelve legions. They were apparently, as it were, at his beck and call. Twelve legions of angels that were ready to respond to him. And the other lovely thought, my dear brothers and sisters, that goes with this section must surely be that this is not the only time that he was in a place of delight or a place of garden, isn't it? No, the Lord just didn't have one temptation either. He says in Luke chapter 22, I think it's verse 43, concerning his temptations, ye which have followed me in my temptations. Plural. So it's not as though he had this temptation and from then on it was just a free ride. They were there all the time, just the same as they are with you and I. Touched at all points, like as we are. Suffering temptation all the time. But in the end he came to Gethsemane and that surely must be an hour of severest trial. And this one here and that one in Gethsemane sort of stand at the beginning and the end of his ministry. They are very representative, symbolic of all of those temptations that were all, always in his life. The 40 days and Gethsemane. And where was he in Gethsemane? He was in a garden. He was buried in a garden. A lovely symbol. That though he had for your sake and mine gone out into the wilderness among all the pricks, the thorns and difficulties of life, of humankind that they have brought upon themselves, though he was identified with us and bear our infirmities, yet eventually he would take us from the wilderness and he would take us into the garden of delight. And it was lovely that in Gethsemane, in the peak of that stress, he was nevertheless in a garden where it says he was wont to be. He'd often gone to that place for quiet reflections, knowing that all the connotations were there, that he was going to bring not only himself, but Peter, James and John, whom he chose and wanted to be with him at that time, and all other mankind that have gone there into Gethsemane from time to time. I don't mean the literal place. But I mean all of us can go into Gethsemane, can't we? And we go with him and we can take our problems and we can pour out our tears and we can place the problem before him and identify with him in something to, in some degree of the tremendous pressure that Gethsemane means, the olive press, that he experienced at that time. Well, it was a place of garden and out of that pressure would come delight and life and fellowship with God. And so appropriately, when it was all over, They took him, they placed him in Joseph's tomb that was in a garden. It wasn't at Golgotha, a place of a skull. It was in a garden. And it was symbolic of the garden of delight that will yet blossom out upon the earth that will be the great fruit of the work that he achieved in overcoming temptation as he did in these 40 days. Can you imagine 40 days in that way, my dear brothers and sisters? 
You know, there's lots of things in the scripture you really can't take in unless you think about them, can you? You know, we've got lots of opportunities around here. We can talk to each other all the time. Have a cup of tea all the time. But you know, almost. It'd be nice if you could. <laughs> but some of the best things at a time like this is when you go away. You know, I've noticed on the back of our doors it says that we can go for a walk in the fields. The proprietor is telling us that we can, we can use the quieter places that are around here. You know, it's lovely to have each other's company. That's lovely. But there's something even higher than that. And this Mark chapter 1 makes that very, very strong. That to really grasp the full power of that, you need, I need, quietness. We need time for reflection. To be able to let it come right into the heart. So it's ours. We can take it from here. Not because of something borrowed that you might have heard. But because it's yours. And because you and your God have thought that out together that's the real power of reflection meditation upon the word of God get the information then distill it and make it your own that's the real fruit of Bible study now in verses 14 to 20 we have the beginning of his ministry that is of his open declarations he had been down to John the Baptist there had been acquaintance with some of the disciples before this time. But only Philip, it seems to this point, had yet joined his company in that sense. And so, in Galilee, the four, Peter, Andrew, James and John, are now called. In verses 14 to 20 is the calling of those four disciples. It's an interesting scene, but it begins on a sad note. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I don't imagine, my dear brothers and sisters, that that was not without some real impact upon the Lord. He loved John and spoke of John in the tenderest expressions. There hath not been a greater than John the Baptist. So when you read that in verse 14, that after that John was put in prison, don't think the Lord was like a man sort of on the starting blocks, ready to go, just waiting for John to be cast in prison. Nothing is further from the truth. Indeed, he knew that that would be the point. But it was not of his desire that his beloved cousin should be so ignominiously treated by Herod. It caused him, no doubt, great concern. But you see, when the forerunner has gone, when that faithful voice is no longer down by the tides of the Jordan, when there's no longer a stream of people coming down there, being blistered, as it were, into repentance by the strong words and the most uh, stringent example that John was bringing, then indeed the work came right to the feet of the Lord, didn't it? There was need then to pick up the work and to announce a message of hope. It's not a message of repentance, although, of course, that's always contained. But this time it was a matter of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news of God and of the kingdom of God was coming. And now it was his responsibility alone when the friend of the bridegroom had been cast into prison that he should respond to that and take up that message. You know, sometimes it's necessary that even a very great companion should be taken. One thinks, for example, of Jonathan. Why was it necessary that Jonathan should have been taken? Why David would have loved to have reigned with Jonathan. 
And Jonathan said in his last words to David, in the wilderness, in the wood of Ziph, he said, I know that thou shalt be king and I shall be next unto thee. Could you have thought of anybody more appropriate than Jonathan? Why? Why? Joab on your right? Abishai on your left? What sort of men were they in stature to the likes of Jonathan? But God caused Jonathan's beautiful frame to fall upon the harsh mountains of Gilboa together with his father and his other two brothers. In the wisdom of God, that's how it should be. I suppose because some people could never divest themselves of loyalties towards the family of Saul whilst there was a remnant of that family there. And perhaps it was here too that the work of the Lord would always be in a state of division if John the Baptist had still been operating at that time. So the forerunner is taken in the wisdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. I want you to notice that, my dear brethren and sisters. The gospel was always the kingdom of God. People have neglected that today and they say that the gospel is Jesus saves. That is, they've neglected the other half and the Lord Jesus Christ does indeed save. And salvation is preached in his name. But that's the means to an end. And the end is the kingdom of God. The gospel was always a matter of a glorious time. Coming upon the earth when all those beautiful visions of the Old Testament will surely be fulfilled. And so into Galilee he came with that message. My dear brothers and sisters, can you imagine that? Is that just to gain words on the page? Imagine that Galilee that we described at our readings yesterday. A stony, hard, mountainous area with some lovely little settings of green among the valleys, but generally speaking, harsh. Not a rich and fertile place at all. But little groups of family villages and perhaps a little more from time to time with a a run of uh, small towns around the lakeside. Many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in that vicinity. It was heavily populated, and surrounding it all, there were the Gentiles round about, in fact, mixed up with them as well. Hence it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And Jesus arose and began to speak to that group of people among all of earth's inhabitants, and they were chosen to hear the Son of God preaching the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. What time is fulfilled? Well, what we were looking at last night in brief the time of Daniel's 70 week prophecy of chapter 9 which spoke of the time for Messiah to come and now with the three and a half years of his ministry ahead of him it was appropriate that it should be said the time is come there were people in Israel who were aware of the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks in Luke chapter 3 And verse 15 it says, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. That's a very clear indication that there were many people who were aware of the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. No doubt Simeon and Anna. Simeon who had been told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's anointed. No doubt they were very deliberate students of that ninth chapter of Daniel. So there was an expectancy in Israel at that time. And so he came on this occasion around by the lakeside, coming down perhaps from the north of the lake, where most of the little villages were situated. 
And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. The sea is still full of fish. It's still, in fact, the business of quite a lot of men on the Sea of Galilee to gather fish. It's a prolific source of fish and always has been. Probably not as much today as it used to be, but even today it bears witness to the fact that the sea has been very prolific in fish. And so here was a little fishing company. It consisted of five people plus their servants. We read in verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. So they obviously were part of this fishing company. And Jesus said to them in verse 17, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, they immediately drop their nets, and they come with him. Straightway, verse 18, they followed. They forsook their nets. Their lifelong trade was immediately scrapped that they might go with him. They didn't run off to the life insurance office to make sure that their superannuation scheme was all in place, did they? Nor did they ask him, but where shall we live? Or how shall we be sustained? All of those things they knew would be provided for. You know, brethren and sisters, haven't we got a lot to learn? We've almost got that way in the brotherhood today, that all of those things are almost essentials. Are they essentials? Look at that example. Is that essential then? It's really, when you boil it down, it hits hard at every one of us, myself included, that it really is an issue of faith, isn't it? As to whether in our prayers to God we really believe what we say when we believe that God will trust us. These men dropped the lot. And it was a fishing enterprise because they were not the only ones involved. See verse 19. When he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who also were in the ship mending their nets. Mending their nets. How interesting. It's just like you and I, isn't it? Mending our nets, our commercial nets. That we might be able to snare and trap sufficient. Always mending our nets in a sense, aren't we? And it was while they were doing that that the master called them to another kind of fishing, to the drawing out of the world, men before his name. Not fish, but men. Men by which God might be aggrandized, rather than by fish that might increase their incomes. So there was James and John also involved in this enterprise. And Zebedee, who was the father of James and John. So that's five people, isn't it? Peter, Andrew, John, James, and Zebedee. And perhaps Zebedee, being the older person, might have been the one who first organised this very nice collection of five brethren together. And they were doing very well too, because it mentions in verse 20 that there were also hired servants. And it's just as well there were hired servants because it seems then they took over the business. So away went James and John. It's Peter and Andrew with the Lord and left Zebedee and the hired servants about their employment. I wonder if any of us would have the courage to do that. 
How much are we prepared to lose our security? Our security. For the true security. That's a very real test upon us today. And no doubt it's just the same here as it is in Australia. Everyone's talking about superannuation and insurance and assurance. And if you're not careful, you get caught up in a lot of it. You know, I knew a brother once who didn't believe in life insurance and didn't believe in insurance much either. And I've heard people call him in question. But tell me this, my dear brothers and sisters. Have you ever known a brother or sister who have really given their life to the truth and when hardship has hit, has really hit, have not been provided for? Name me one. To the contrary, when hardship has really hit a brother or a sister whose life has been given to the service of Christ, what happens? You can't keep deep, get deep enough down in your pockets to help them, can you? Because they're an absolute example to you and always have been. And when now tragedy has hit them, what do you feel like? You're going to sit there with your mounting millions? You don't feel like that, do you? You suddenly think, oh, that brother's given all his life to the truth. I'm going to go and help him all I can. And what happens is a tremendous outwelling of, of, of feeling and affection and generosity of heart that we might be able, privileged, to help in that cause. Does that do the brotherhood some good? My word, it does the brotherhood some good. Because then we feel our fellowship together. And in the afflictions of one, everybody joins. And a very beautiful thing is occasion. You know, recently, our Bible school in Australia has suffered a fire. It was a very tragic fire. It was lit by vandals. With just a little less than four weeks to go to the Bible school. 630 people... <coughs> We're going to that Bible school, including ourselves. And it looked like this, one of the largest Bible schools that had been held for some years, was going to have to be cancelled. What could you do? There was the kitchen, with all of its, uh, its specialised equipment, absolutely in shambles, raised to the ground. And the fire had gone forth from the kitchen, and it had gone into the, uh, the roofing of the huge dining room, as you can imagine, sufficient to, to take 630 people in one sitting. It looked like all would be ruined as far as the Bible school was concerned. Have we got insurance? No, there was no insurance. There was no insurance on the place. No one knew that until the fire came. But those who happened to own the school had never taken out insurance. Do you know what the reaction was? Tragedy? was about $50,000 worth of damage. Within four weeks, we came to that school and we worked, walked in on Saturday night to the dining room, which before had been covered with smoke and soot, much of, which, much of the roof of which had had to be replaced with steel girders. And alongside that was the kitchen. Better than ever. Brethren came from everywhere. Brethren that had weeks of holiday, older brethren came from interstate and worked around the clock that that school might be supported. Money poured in. People emptied their pockets. Was that good or bad? Would it have been better to have insurance and to pull in some great big builder that could do it in a flash? I ask you, what would have been the best? There isn't really any doubt about the answer to that, is there? Everyone who went to that school 
felt the hand of God and the fellowship of brethren and sisters. There were many of the workers still working during the Bible school, cleaning up some of the outside uh, uh, rooms of the, uh, of the kitchen, which still needed some uh, improvement. But I couldn't help think as we were leaving that school, you know, the fire was not a problem. No problem. And no one was the less because of it. If somebody lost 500, if somebody lost 1,000, they were better off. They'd put it where it would gain some good interest. Interest unto eternal life. And that Bible school went like a rocket from the day one right through. Because we worked together in a sense of desperation. There was a spirit about that school that just had to be felt to be believed. So, always remember, when that man rings you up on the phone and says, Mr Smith, your uh, life assurance was alright in 1962, but you know, 20,000 is not going to see you through now. Just remember that there is another one in heaven above who can guard us against all uncertainties and can bring us unto his kingdom and glory. We don't need to be surrounded by all kinds of human devices that avoid, endeavour to avoid every kind of calamity and uncertainty. We don't need that. Around us are the angels of God. Indeed, we act sensibly, we act wisely, but don't let us forget that it's our Heavenly Father who sends his angels as ministering spirits that we might be guarded against. All right, they came with him. It wasn't the first time they'd met him. But now they were ready to come and sometimes in the inky darkness of those nights upon the Sea of Galilee I have no doubt that, uh, that, that Peter and uh, Andrew that James and John or perhaps in uh, swapping their company had been out in their boats together and they'd been speaking about what they had seen uh, down by the river of Jordan with John the Baptist and the issues that that, meant, meant, that that man meant to their life what John was doing and why he was a forerunner and who he was a forerunner to they clearly knew concerning this Jesus of Nazareth and what the issues were when he was coming. And I believe they were waiting for this event. They had made their decision. And when they saw that glorious figure. They come round calmly and yet uh, in full control. With all the authority of the Son of God. They were ready to respond to that word that said. Come ye after me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. No, no other voice ever commanded the respect of men like that did it what an incredible thing that is in verse 17 now in the subsequent verses uh, through to verse 30 sorry through to verse uh, 34 we have the events of one day it's a sabbath day isn't a sabbath a day of rest well here's a day of rest it's a rest day of rest in God's service and there's three very wonderful occasions that happen on this day. They went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. He was probably invited to speak as the custom of the times was. Nazareth, or rather Capernaum, had become his home. We realise from verse 29 that uh, Peter and Andrew's house was in Capernaum. And the Lord made that house the first place of the ecclesia. So that when he came into Capernaum, it was, a like the, it was like the electing of taking on a new city. 
He would be right there by the sea from henceforth and not so much amidst the hills of Nazareth as he was in Capernaum uh, towards the west. There was a large synagogue there. You know, there is today the ruins of a synagogue by Capernaum. You might have seen the slides of it. It's distinctly the ruins of a synagogue. And the interesting thing is about synagogues that they always built them upon where a synagogue was. Unless, of course, it was a new one. They wouldn't say, well, this synagogue's uh, run its course and we will therefore go and build one next door or down the street. They would clear that one which was and they would build thereupon because nothing could be done. Upon that, no, no other way could that ground be used if it had been for a, uh, for a synagogue. That's the law of the Jews. So we can be quite sure, it's an interesting reflection, that upon that very site, the Lord Jesus Christ sat up and spoke in the synagogue at Capernaum. Not once, but on a number of occasions. Don't imagine that the synagogue elders were a nice, comely, gentlemanly and uh, tender group. They were not. They were a quite a callous crowd. Jesus condemned Capernaum later, didn't he? He said, though thou art exalted unto heaven, in Matthew chapter 11. So they were not a very soft company at all. They were the group, for example, who later on were going to set a man in front of him with a withered hand and use him but as a device to see what the Lord would use. What a callous crowd they were. And so he went into Capernaum and he began to teach on the Sabbath day. What does that mean to you? Again, we need time in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels quickly, you will never really appreciate the depth of them. Look at verse 22. They were astonished at his doctrine. Why were they astonished? He taught them as one that had authority. That's the word of this section. And not as the scribes. When he spoke, there was not a reference back to others in the past. He was not quoting what Rabbi Ben Alashi said back 200 years or what Rabbi Ben Yehuda said 100 years ago or what some other rabbi said 50 years ago. That's how they used to go on. It was very much like what you have very often today in which clergymen don't speak from the word of God and get hold of the Bible itself and make that live. Rather they refer to this and they refer to that and they speak of social issue here and social issue there. So that perhaps in the, in the pulpits of, of South Africa today, there's a lot more said about the racial question than there is about the need for the race of mankind to find life eternal. So it was in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel, the announcement of the kingdom of God, the spirit of the prophets was not being found. From It was as though God and the spirit of the prophets had walked into their synagogue. It was as though the very voice of God was being declared from their, uh, from their pulpit, from their stand. And he taught them as one that had authority. There was no reference to others. He taught them as the Son of God. And they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded forth from his mouth. And there was in their synagogue a symbolic man. A man with an unclean spirit. You know, there was nothing that Jews dreaded more than uncleanness, was it? That all those laws about washings for uncleanness had driven themselves mad about uncleanness. 
And they were driven themselves mad about the Sabbath. They had all kinds of debates about the Sabbath. They used to debate about whether you could go this far or that far. Whether you could cook a meal or what type of meal you could cook. Whether you could turn the light on. They didn't have lights to turn on in those days, did they? They had a wick. And they used to tell, talk to themselves about whether you could reach up to put the wick out if it was there or whether it would be acceptable to snuff it out if it was there. Can you imagine such trivial nonsense? They used to talk about work and what was work on the Sabbath and what wasn't. And whether the egg that was laid on the Sabbath was, uh, was in fact edible because without question the, the chook had certainly made some effort. <laughs> you might think that's a joke. It is a joke. But you'll find that in their, in their writings. That was, the, that was the, the height of their discussions. Their biblical exegesis, I might say. When Jesus came, there was none of that sort of thing. You see, there was an unclean spirit. Despite all of their washings, they were concerned about uncleanness. But right in their synagogue, right in their place of teaching, right in the front row, there was a man who had an unclean spirit and he was but symbolic of what had affected all of them despite their washings. Their heart was the place of cleanness or uncleanness and that was defiled before God. And this man cried out in verse 24 in an expression that really was the voice of all of them. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now you might perceptively note that there's a confusion of ideas there. What is the passage in the Bible that spoke of one coming who would destroy? It's Daniel chapter 9, isn't it? But it was the abominable desolator that should destroy. True Messiah, the Prince, was spoken of in the prophecy, but he was coming to die, not to destroy and in the confusion of this man's mind, he knew something of Scripture, but not all of it. And you know, the Jews were worried about that. They thought that he might cause the destruction of their nation. They said it is better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. In a very real way, he and his confused mind was asking Jesus to go on his way and not to trouble their complacency. But there was a need. There was a crying out of this one and so he was going to find some cleansing at the hand of the Lord. Jesus rebuked him saying hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit pneuma as the word isn't it's a word commonly used for spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice he came out of him. Can you see that picture in front of us, my dear brethren and sisters, as we take our seats in one of the positions in the synagogue, the women towards the back and the men towards the front? And there's this stilled silence as the Lord then faces the man who had cried out to him, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And there's a great writhing as that man is eventually lifting himself up mentally that he can look at things aright. You see, a man with an unfirm, infirm mind is not really prepared to look at things as they are. 
His mind has not, is not able to lift itself up. If you've had some sort of mental depression, you would know what that means, isn't, don't you? There are probably quite a number who know exactly what that means, even if they haven't been right down where he was. The mind just can't get up and lift it all and take it all in and bear with it all. It sinks under and a demented mind has sunken right down. He might always have been like that. But now he's having to come up and the pressure of coming up and of bearing it all and seeing it as it all is and of being able to speak to people in perfect natural responsibility is a tremendous struggle for him. And that's seen in verse 26. There's a man of unclean spirit is now coming and lifting himself up. He's torn and cries to bear that load. It really was the emergence of a true Israelite, able to see things as they really were, cleansed finally from all the superstition and nonsense that had gone on with his law. And consequently, as they saw this man that had been in their synagogue all those years, you know, they used to cast out the others of uncleanness. If one had had a relative who died, not here in the Sabbath, thank you, not here in the synagogue. If there was a leper, they told him to go outside the gates. But the peculiar circumstance was that Jesus found in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Oh, it was such a symbolic thing. It was a wonderful circumstance. And consequently the reaction was upon them all as the circumstances of that man was affected, was felt by all of them. They were all amazed. Insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, there's our word again from verse 22, for with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits and they do obey him. You know, it's not to the psychiatrists and the psychologists that we need to go, is it? That troubles me when I hear of that. It's the word of God. It's to sit into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to go. And perhaps it is because of the lack of our compassion. You know, compassion means sympathies together. Compassion. And you know, a brother and sister can only really come to you in time of need if they really believe you can understand. That you can sit yourself in their shoes and understand them. And I think so often people end up going to a psychologist or psychiatrist for a matter of the mind when really they should come to their brethren because we perhaps don't bend down enough to help them. They don't know that we really do care for them. There were people in the Lord's life that felt like that. We'll find them. We'll find one case uh, next Sunday morning. We look at the case of Jairus and his daughter and so on. They don't know that we really are interested in their well-being. We've got to make sure that people know that. So immediately, verse 28, this was no ordinary miracle. It was a most amazing thing. And because it happened in such a central place that gave some leadership to the whole area, immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Lovely to contemplate that, isn't it? People running home with a message. How'd things go in the synagogue? Oh, nothing like that. Never heard anything like it before in my life. Why, what do you mean? Who was speaking? Which rabbi? 
wasn't a rabbi at all who was it? Jesus who? he's never been there before a visitor what synagogue does he come from? I wouldn't have any idea in fact he didn't even look like a rabbi what did he speak about? What did he do? And so the message would have gone over all the, uh, over all the lunchtime tables as they discussed this thing until eventually it was just the talk of the town and it spread to other towns and away it went. Never been anything like it. What? A demented man? No doubt people went down the street to see him. To see if he was where he always used to be. And found that he was not. He was now talking with his parents and with others of his relatives and so forth. There was a glorious spirit of, of cleanliness that was rushing through, jet, through Galilee at that time as everybody took into cognizance the amazing circumstance that had happened on that day. So the area was alive. And as soon as he went home from the synagogue, he went to this house of which we've mentioned of Simon and Andrew. When they were come out of the synagogue, verse 29, they entered into the house of Simon, that's Peter of course, and Andrew, with James and John. Can you see that scene? My word, those four disciples are getting an early uh, introduction into his uh, ministry, aren't they? But there's a very tragic circumstance. The house is quiet. The blinds are drawn. There's a very serious grief that uh, meets the Lord at that place because Peter's mother-in-law is sick of a fever and anon they tell him of her. That's why the place was so quiet. That's why it was so dark. And he came and he looked upon those fever-ridden uh, fever countenance. A fever is a high temperature probably generated from an infection. We don't have any trouble with that today, do we? Don't we so often skip over the things which for other generations were a cause of great concern? What do we do for fever? Why, run up to the doctor and get a case of antibiotic and two days' time you've forgotten about it. Couldn't do that in those days. This woman was nigh unto death. And if things had have continued, she would have gone that way. He came up and he took her by the hand expression of himself through his hand to her and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her her temperature returned to norm and she ministered unto them you see the very expression the fever left her is not a medical term isn't it the fever doesn't leave the body does it the temperature drops if you're going to put it in medical terms and so also it was with the man who was the demoniac in the synagogue it says that the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice. They're not medical terms. We know what happens with a, a man who has an unclean spirit, a man that is demented, and he's brought into his right mind. That's what happens. He's brought into his right mind. He's able to see things as they really are again, hold hold of life with his mind. It can take the pressure. So because the terms of those times are used, doesn't mean to say that they had a belief in some sort of demigods called demons that could enter into the minds of men of course not it was using the terminology that was relevant to the times so the fever left her so I think well where did it go to but it didn't it's just that her temperature dropped and then we have that beautiful uh, picture there that this elderly woman we never told who Peter's wife was but it was her mother no doubt a very gracious person that she ministered unto them and how she would have cooked on that occasion how she would have cared 
to try and make that meal so lovely for the one that had restored her to life again. So there was peace in that home. And that home now becomes the first place of the ecclesia. Note that. The ecclesia was in houses, not in ecclesial halls. That's where it started. That's where it was in the days of the apostles. And here, it's just in this little house in Capernaum. Not far away from the synagogue. You could go there today and you could imagine it with all the imagination in the world, if you like. You could see it and feel it just by the lakeside there today. And in the third uh, incident that we want to mention this morning, because we won't be able to get through to verse 45, we read in verse 32, And at even, when the sun did set, it had been a very busy day, hadn't it? Calling disciples, then into the synagogue, teaching, tremendous impact in his words, tremendous spirit from him that was given, then into the house of the disciples, Peter and John, Peter and Andrew. Then the healing of the woman, the meal that she prepared for them. And then sitting with them and no doubt talking about things of God. At even when the sun did, did set, we have the reaction of what we read in verse 28. There was a lot of things of grief and of sadness in Galilee. They didn't have medical clinics in those days. If a little boy fell down from the tree, and the tree was of some height, he busted his leg, and his leg was out of joint, and it stayed that way. They didn't know how to go and put it back in. Or if he broke it, well, it might heal right, and it might not. But there was no such thing as plaster, and x-rays, and pins, and antibiotics. And all the other things that come along as hereditary illnesses, if one had one of those, one lived with it. If one had children that were infirm, children of, in, of unfirm, infirm mind, there was no sort of special clinic where you could send them and they had every kind of toy and convenience or specialised staff. What a different world that was. We live in a very artificial world, don't we? But all those infirmities were there, in their rooms. They had both, in most of their houses but one room. It was kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, dining room, sitting room, the lot. So everything was known to them. It was not a matter that you could pop them away in some guest house. It wasn't sort of an old aged home either. Where because you wanted those lovely holidays on the Swiss Alps or somewhere, you could pop mum and dad and forget them. And life would go on very clearly, very simply for them. Couldn't do it in those days. That's what the world thinks like today. Get rid of your problems so you can do what you like. But all those infirmities are part and parcel of our own lives and intended to be so. And that's how it was at this time. Those people had all kinds of griefs and they had to bear with them. They were a different type of generation to ours. But when now they heard of a man who had cured that well-known demoniac that had been in the synagogue and they'd seen him Saturday after Saturday, but year after year, when they knew that he was cured, and he must have looked something too. You know what so often those people look like? Terrible sad side, isn't it? It grieves you when you look at them and you just love to be able to write it. Well, they'd all seen that from time to time. Now if he could be, with all of his obscurity and all of his strangeness of face 
and mine. If he could be cured, then there's hope for my child, there's hope for my cousin, for my grandfather, for my auntie and all the others that were all around the district of Galilee. A new surge of hope went through the whole area and here they come. Someone decided that they were going to find out where he was and they told the message to others. He's down there in that new house that the newly wedded Peter has bought for his wife and where his mother-in-law is as well. And at even, the message had got right around. And when the sun did set, what a picture, what a picture, sitting over there in the western skies beyond the hills of western Galilee. And they're down by the sea, so it sets early, doesn't it? Because it sets behind the hills in the west. When the sun did set, when the natural light was gone, when all the inventions of natural enlightenment would spent their force they brought unto him all that were diseased can you see them you really have to think don't you wizened up old people limbs that wouldn't work bodies that were wrecked with disease can you see some of them now? Them that were possessed with devils, demoniacs, diamonosomiae, as the Greek word is, from which you would get the word demoniac. You imagine if you have one of those in your family. Don't you often think about that when you hear of one that is born and you think, my word, their life will never be the same? What would that be if that was my child? Don't we all remember husbands? striding up the corridor of the maternity hospital and whilst we at one time wanted a boy or a girl because it might just make the balance or for some other reason my word when the pressure's on when that child is about to be born and your wife's in all of that uh, predicament and you, you have to share that with her what do you want? you couldn't care less whether it's a boy or a girl all you want is your wife and a sound child so much rests at stake. But you see, people were not able to just say what they want as they can't today. And when that comes, it comes. Those days they had to live with it. And there were all kinds of maladies that you and I are able to get past, but they couldn't and they were there. And then they came running down, bearing these people on their backs, carrying them together on beds, bringing them to the door of his house. All the city, verse 33, was gathered together at the door. I wonder if we can see that picture. All the city was there. Not only those that had the problems, but those who came to see. To see. And after that meal was finished, it says that he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases and cast out many demoniacs or de devils demons and suffered not the demons to speak because they knew him what a beautiful picture that is my dear brothers and sisters in front of him there is torn humanity with all of its wretchedness its weakness its incurable diseases its grief its agony and as he moved out into that mass of mankind this son of righteousness, when the natural son had gone, this son of righteousness arose with, with healing in his beams. 
shining upon them as the light of God. Behind there was joy and hope and lifting up and springing about with all the joy that he brought to their limbs or their bodies or their minds. And in front of him was still this torn and wretched and grief-stricken humanity. And so he went through the company of that people. Can you imagine all those people going back to their homes? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Is it any wonder they streamed to him from Galilee? Don't you long, my dear brothers and sisters, to see that man in the earth again? You know, the world is full of problems, isn't it? Have you ever been to India? Have you ever looked at the streets of, of India, of Bombay? Have you ever got off the plane at Bombay and seen all those little children that at half past one at night come up to you asking for money, money? And there they are, as thin as a rake. Little fingers, tiny arms, blotches all over their faces. You know them. You see them in this country. What can you do for that problem? Don't you long to see the Son of God, the Son of Righteousness in the earth? We must. Just because we've got nice clothes, we've got comfortable homes, we can, we can contrive for every circumstance that comes in life. Doesn't mean to say, and even because we know the kingdoms comes, that we're not touched by those things. We are. More than all the people in the world, surely those who know the Bible should be touched by the plight of humanity and long for the time when he can bring straight limbs, strong bodies and clean minds that the world might be able to merge together in one. The colour of skin will mean nothing. That status in life will mean nothing. But then there will be inequality when he will lift up the poor and needy. And because of that, God will give him an everlasting kingdom that shall never pass away. Oh, I long for those times, my dear brothers and sisters. The world is terribly unequal, shockingly unequal. I remember going to the Philippines some years ago and coming home and thinking how unequal the world is. One half has so much and the other has, has so little. An inextricable problem today. But we long earnestly for the coming of the Son of Righteousness will be able to merge out into all those dark peoples and be able to lift them up and give them hope on an equality. And when the earth shall rejoice in the righteousness that God will bring and in the healing and in the preaching that will then flood the earth with light and hope.